Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Krita, your host. Very happy to be with you again. Today it's a special one because we are talking about worship in education. And I know that uh, the enemy of God and us all don't want to worship God in a right way. And we are going to find out in the Bible how to worship God. But I would like to welcome uh, the panel for today. And um, I will say uh, hello to Brenton. Good to have you with us, Brenton. Thank you, Nick. It's always a pleasure to share on air with our listeners. All right. Still a bit down south there. I will say hello to Joe. Good to be with us. Good morning. Good to be here. All right. And Will on the other side of the town. Thank you for joining. It's always a pleasure, Nick. Thank you. I would like to welcome Lija. It's a blessing for me to study God's Word again. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Ken, how are you today? And good to join us uh, on Bible study. Thank you, Nick. It's always great to be here with the team. Len, it's our facilitator. And Len, thank you for putting together this uh, study. Uh, with no further comments, I would like just to welcome you first and also hand it over to you. Yes, hello, listeners. Welcome to the program today. This week, we are talking about worship and education. Last week, we studied about how Jesus, the master teacher, dealt with people whose lives were affected by problems such as disobedience, disease, and disability. And we understand that the Lord is not as interested in punishing people for their wickedness as he is interested in making things right for them. True Christian education must be about pointing us to the solution of the sin problem. And that solution is Jesus Christ. This week, we'll share with you what the Bible has to say about worship in education. But before we start, uh, I'm going to invite Ken, if you would share with us in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord God, as we come before you today, just a group, Lord God, of ordinary people who have been touched by the Holy Spirit in your word, we're so grateful, Lord God, that we can meet here today and share your word on earth. Such a privilege, Heavenly Father, to be able to share this with so many people. And we pray, Lord God, that the Holy Spirit will touch their hearts as it has ours, look into things of Jesus and the wonderful life he has promised to all who will follow him. We ask this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Ken. Now, Will, to start off, I'm going to ask you an interesting question. Is worship a part of man's makeup? It's um, remarkable to me, Len, panel and listener, that even the most primitive tribe in the jungles Uh, hidden jungles of the world, you'll find people making images or gods and worshipping them. They may have never read anything on uh, worship or praise, and yet there seems to be an innate uh, desire within mankind, his very makeup, to um, worship something. And that's why even though they don't understand perhaps who this great God of heaven really is, they would um, 
sense some greater power around them and create an image of their own making and bow down in front of it. So in answer, Len, I would say there is inborn in man the desire to worship. Yes, well, I was um, faced with this when I was doing my tertiary education. A psychology lecturer said that there is a need within every person to worship something or someone. Well, we live in a Western society, Joe. Some examples of what people might worship. I find that uh, in our sophisticated modern times, if you could call it that, we don't tend to create very often, you know, crude images from wood and stone, perhaps like in, you know, decades, hundreds, maybe even thousands years ago. But we tend to worship things that other things, for instance, like fast cars or movie stars, sports stars. Maybe we worship educational achievements, you know, degrees and postdoctoral studies and all that kind of thing. Or we might worship, you know, attractive people. And all these things, I guess, you know, we know what the drift is. I guess it fills some void in their lives. So if they worship a celebrity or a beautiful person, it's because they perhaps don't feel very attractive themselves. Or if they worship um, someone who is very athletic, it could be because they themselves aren't, don't feel like a winner. You know, everyone likes to worship a winner. Same thing for, um, you know, people who are attained some wonderful achievements in the educational field. It's maybe because they don't feel very clever themselves. So we tend to find, you know, find something to worship that seems to fill a need, a deep felt need that may be subconscious or maybe conscious even. So I guess that's where the danger is, filling that void with something that's unworthy. And modern day life is full of it. Yes. I was just thinking that this is such a true statement that we have this inbuilt desire to worship something and many people actually unknowingly worship things but sometimes they're not actually aware that they're actually worshiping things but they actually are. Yes, I, I just find it such an interesting uh, statement. Yes, I think you're right. Some people are not aware of um, what's absorbing their time and affections. In fact, the other morning when I went to golf and I played golf in the early morning, one of my uh, golfing buddies pulled up and I said, how are you? And I called him by name and he said, I'm pissed off. <laughs> excuse, excuse the language, but I guess it's part of the Australian vernacular. Very definitely. <laughs> Somebody came during the night. His wife is a Buddhist and they had an image of Buddha in their, on their front, in their front garden and somebody swiped it and he was very pleased about that. And I guess we're not pleased somebody steals something. But he said, my wife used to put flowers out there and so on. So she obviously was in a kind of a way worshipping this image. Yes. And perhaps the, uh, the Buddha moved to a better garden. <laughs> yes, well, Good well <laughs> somebody saw a car pull up in their driveway during the daytime when they were out. And um, it appears that the person who pulled up stole their little Buddha. Anyhow, the question for us to uh, to deal with is who or what do 
we worship. Now, in the book of Daniel, in chapter 3, is a remarkable story, Brenton, about three young men who would not worship what was popular to worship at the time. Would you like to relate that story? Uh, I will relate it, Len, rather than read it. It will take the rest of our session. (laughs) Um, Very quickly, in Daniel chapter 2, uh, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, of Babylon had a dream and only Daniel, uh, through God's intervention, was able to reveal to him what he had seen in the dream. What the king saw in the dream was basically the history of the world, starting with his kingdom and going right down till Christ comes. And that image had various metals in it. The main head was of gold and Daniel told him that he was the head of gold. Now, he said that after him would come another image. What we find in Daniel chapter 3 is a couple of interesting points. Number one, there's no sign of Daniel. I would suggest the reason Daniel is not noted in Daniel chapter 3 is I think the king may have, um, because of what he was about to do, he may have felt embarrassed, so he got Daniel out of the way, maybe sent him on a business trip to another part of the Babylonian Empire. But the three Hebrews, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who were Daniel's friends, they were, along with all the other people of the realm, requested to appear on the plain of Jura and bow down to an image that was made all of gold. I think we could safely assume, Len, as a result of uh, this image being built, can you imagine an image 30 metres high made completely of gold? Now, whether the whole thing was of gold or whether it was covered in gold is really irrelevant. Um, It would have been fabulously expensive and also really interesting to look at. But what was being said by the king is that unless you bow down to this image and worship it, we'll throw you into a burning, fiery furnace. Now, the boys, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, would have been brought up uh, worshipping not only the true God, but they would have been mindful of commandment number two, you shall not bow down to any idols. So they were not prepared to bow down. (laughs) Some of the things that really intrigued me about this chapter is why did Nebuchadnezzar put them in this situation if he knew that they probably weren't going to worship his image anyway? So it's a question for us to think about. But the bottom line is that they refused to worship his image. In fact, they said to the king, we don't need to discuss this matter Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down and worship the idol or the image that you have set up. Now, God, in a very signal manner, walked in the burning fiery furnace with these three young men. We believe it was Jesus Christ himself who walked in the fire with them. And he miraculously delivered them so that when they were commanded by the king to come out of the burning fiery furnace, they didn't even smell of smoke. Um, I think there's a very signal lesson for us there that God honours those who honour him. This would have been a lesson not only to all those who did bow down, but it would have shown who the true God really is. Now, here's another interesting point. It is probable that Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, was present on this occasion, and more than likely he would have obviously been one of those who didn't see a problem with bowing down to the image. So the simple um, summary of all of this is they put God first, they uh, revered his commandments, and they refused to worship the image because he was the God of creation. 
and they felt that the only worship and homage that they could give was to the person who created all things. Yes. Well? Well, I'd like to take the lead from what Jesus said when he was confronted by Satan in the wilderness. He said, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Yes. Yes. So here was a case where these men were being tested to commit what I would call false worship. Now, Ken, would you say that worship, false worship, worship of an idol or anything other than God, is any worse or not so bad as committing adultery? Well, I think the Bible makes it fairly clear that any form of idol worship is not to be acceptable, and it's certainly not acceptable to the Lord. As Will has just said, we are to worship the Lord our God only. And if we look at uh, James chapter 2 and verses 10 to 11, for whosoever shall keep the whole law, we're talking of the commandments here, of course, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of all the law. So it makes it fairly clear that if you sin in one part of the commandments, you might as well have sinned in them all. And obviously the most important one, I think, believe, is to worship the Lord our God. Yes. So really to answer the question in a nutshell, false worship, is just as bad as committing adultery, murder, etc. Nick? I was just going to mention that um, even though we may try to differentiate in between some of the commandments, all of the commandments, they have uh, uh, a place and a role in the whole being of, of our experience, you know, with, uh, with God. And worship here, it's uh, one of the most important things because... Uh, committing adultery or stealing it may affect a person or two or whatever but when a false worship is taking place it can affect a nation or even the whole world it is not uh, properly addressed and uh, I was going to mention that uh, as uh, we talked about that golden statue even though the king may realize or not that that's uh, wrong to do that and to claim that after having a wonderful experience with Daniel and uh, explaining the previous chapter, you know, the dream. But I believe there was uh, lots of influence there from the political side, from the wise men maybe of the empire to manipulate, to say so, this thing, because they were carefully watching the behavior of these people from Israel. I, I believe the danger is when popular things are coming in place rather than to listen and to allow the, the Bible to be the, the guidance oh. in the direction we want to follow. Brenton? Just very quickly on that one, Len. It's very interesting. And number two uh, that uh, Joe commented on and others have commented on, you shall have no other gods before me. Can I suggest to you that unless the true God is first in your affections, it is possible to commit adultery 
because if you have other gods before God, um, ultimately the God that you probably have is yourself. Now, you may have heard of situational ethics. Situational ethics rationalises a lot of things away. Therefore, adultery under certain circumstances may be appropriate. Stealing may be appropriate, etc., etc., etc. So really, unless God is first in your heart and your mind, you're always subject to the possibility of falling in these other areas as well. Yes. All right. Well, I think we uh, have made the point that um, it doesn't matter if it's false worship, it's wrong. Yes. And Revelation, Ledger, chapter 14, verse 6 and 7, gives a clear statement about who or what we should worship in this day and age. Would you share that with us? In the Bible, in Revelation 14, verse 6 and 7, says, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Hear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So God himself gave instructions for us to worship him because he is the creator. He is the one who is eternal. He is our Lord, our God, our King, and we have to worship only him. Yes, Now, music can be an act of worship, and many of the lyrics of the Psalms were set to music. Psalm chapter 78 specifically is about teaching children about God as our creator and redeemer. Joe, would you take us through that, please? Yes, Len. I think it might be a good idea just to read it very quickly because God is addressing his people. He thinks this is very important. It starts with, listen, my people, to my teaching and pay attention to what I say. I am going to use wise sayings and explain mysteries from the past, things we have heard and known, things that our fathers told us. We will not keep them from our children. We will Tell the next generation and the Lord's power and his great deeds and the wonderful things he has done. He gave laws to the people of Israel and the commandments to the descendants of Jacob. He instructed our ancestors to teach his laws to their children so that the next generation might learn them and in turn should tell their children. In this way, they also would put their trust in God and not forget what he has done, but always obey his commandments. This comes through and through, doesn't it? Yes. About teaching, teaching our children, repeating, you know, and of course, as you mentioned, set it to music so that it's easier to remember things, apparently, if you accompany it with music and you actually can sing them turn them into songs, and then children will sing them. And this will be a constant reminder of what God has done. Yes. So in there, and thank you for reading that, in there there were some specific reasons why God is worthy to receive worship. In fact, I think there's another thing too that the psalmist David spoke about 
was uh, worshipping the Lord for his laws and his statutes. And um, you might think, well, isn't that a bit funny to worship God for? But his laws and his statutes are just and they're good. So that's a good reason to worship him. Brenton, would you like to take this a little bit further about reasons to worship the Lord? Just going back to God's laws, if you talk specifically about the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the very first verse of Exodus chapter 20 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God gives them a reason as to why they should obey his commandments because he alone has been the reason as to why they're no longer in Egypt, uh, continuing under the bondage of slavery. But in chapter 78 of Psalm, a little bit further on from where Joe read, it says this. It says, Marvellous things he did in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea, caused them to pass through, made the waters stand up like a heap. In the daytime he led them with the cloud, and at night with a pillar of fire. He split the rocks and gave them drink in abundance. And then in verse 24 it talks about how he rained manna from heaven. So taking it one step past what Joe was saying, they're being asked to remember through their grandparents, their great-grandparents and their great-great-great-grandparents, the reason why this is being passed on, the emphasis in this section that I'm dealing with is specifically on God's care for them on a daily basis. He provides their food. He provides their water. Remember, they're in a desert where there aren't any lakes or dams or anything like that. He's provided everything for them. He shields them from the heat of the sun with a pillar of cloud. He shields them from the freezing cold of the desert at night by a pillar of fire. In other words, the, um, in recounting this matter in Psalm 78, the emphasis has changed from his laws and his statutes and his greatness to his watch care, his regular 24-7 care of his people. Yes, well, the Israelites were instructed to pass on this information to their children, not just in Psalms, but yes. there are other places, Deuteronomy chapter 6, I think it is. And I was just thinking about myself and passing on information of what God has done for me to my children and my grandchildren. And I guess you've all thought about this. How much have I passed the information about God's goodness and his greatness to our children and grandchildren? Well, would you like to read to us, or for us please, John chapter 4 and two verses, that's 23 and 24, and just explain what was the setting for this particular statement. Yes, um, Jesus says, But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I think we'll probably comment on uh, worshipping in spirit and truth in a few minutes' time, but let me just tell you what the background was. Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at a well and asks for a drink of water, and uh, she quickly confronts him as a Jew about why the Jews worship God from Jerusalem, whereas the Samaritans' center of worship was Mount Gerizim. 
We all know that a kind of cold war existed between the Jews and the Samaritans when it came to the issue of worship. And the woman at the well distinguished the dividing line in this worship war, saying that our fathers worshipped in this mountain, that's Mount Gerasim, and you people, that's you Jews, say that it's in Jerusalem where uh, you men should worship God. And, of course, Jesus doesn't deny this tension, but he diffuses it by saying that uh, the time is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father because the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Thank you, Will. Now, to understand this a little bit better, what it means to worship in spirit and truth. Brenton, I know you have something to share with. Well, I'll share a statement here, Lynn, and then comment briefly. To say that we must worship God in spirit means, among other things, that worship must originate from within, from the heart. It must be sincere, motivated by our love for God and gratitude for all he is and has done. Worship cannot be mechanical or formalistic. Worship must also be in truth. That means that our worship must conform to the revelation of God in Scripture. It must be informed by who God is and what he is like. Genuine Christ-exalting worship must never be mindless or based on ignorance. It must be doctrinally grounded and focused on the truth of all we know of our great triune God. To worship inconsistently with what is revealed to us in Scripture ultimately degenerates into idolatry. First of all, let's, get, let's just try and summarise a little bit. Will touched on it very well. Christ had touched on a point in the woman's character that she really didn't want to explore. Uh, he uh, indicated to her she'd had five husbands and the man she was living with was not her husband. She tried to change the subject. She thought, I'll get on to a topic that we can all argue about, the, ob- the object of worship or the subject of worship. What Christ was really saying here, I believe, Len, is is very interesting. He was saying the time is coming where it doesn't matter whether it's on Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem, uh, that worship is no longer going to be acceptable. I believe he was forecasting that there would come a time when the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. But I think he was taking it a step further than that and saying that you cannot confine God to just the building. God is everywhere, and therefore worshipping him in in spirit is worshipping him with the right motives. Because God cannot be contained specifically on a chair or in a building, and he's everywhere, therefore the spirit that uh, Will talked about, worshipping him in spirit and in truth, is vitally important. I think he says in a verse or two later, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. We know what we worship because the Jews actually have the revelation of God. And yet, having said that, so often the Jewish worship had become ritualistic. So that which was true had been obscured by the ritualism that they had descended into. So I find um, that today, the worship in spirit and in truth, God wants us to worship him from our heart, with our emotions, with our intelligence, uh, with the word of God. He wants our worship to be focused on the word of God. And I think if we do that, then our worship to him is acceptable. Yes, that's a good statement. Yes, Ken. I just wanted to pick up on a word that Brent said. I thought was uh, important, that ritualistic 
And I think sometimes many Christians uh, and perhaps others that do worship God, they perhaps only worship God on one day of the week. And that's not really worshiping the Lord God because when you think of it, it's true, Christians, if you think about it logically, every single day we have is a gift from God. Every breath we take is a gift from God. Everything good comes from God. And we really should be worshiping God all day, every day. Right, yes. Now, in our morning worship, my wife and I were reading about a modern trend where doctrine is being pushed aside. But what you were sharing with us, Brenton, said that our worship must be doctrinally grounded and focused on truth. Doctrine sometimes regarded as a dirty word, and others regard doctrine as unnecessary. But doctrine is more than just that. Nick, have you got a comment on this? Yes, Len. I mean, uh, unfortunately, when we mention the word uh, doctrines, it, it came with a negative uh, connotation just because of differences in views of certain things. But uh, what doctrine means? It really means like teaching. It's a, it's a Christian uh, doctrine of, of teachings accordingly with, um, w- with the truth of the Bible. Uh, also, uh, the doctrine is mentioned in the Bible in the Old Testament uh, several times, but frequently it's mentioned in the New Testament. Also, I like to say that the ancient Greek word translated as doctrine, in, in its roots means instruction also we are going to be instructed from the Bible. Now, a Christian um, doctrine is what the entire Bible has to say on a particular subject. You see, sometimes you can take a very small section of the Bible and make a doctrine out of it. But uh, to understand correctly what the doctrine means is to look into the whole Bible in regard to a particular subject, and let the Bible explain itself, not to make uh, doctrines on our own, uh, you know, understanding. That's uh, that are just few uh, few aspects of uh, how important it is to have the right doctrine. To say so. Yes, I ask myself the question: Why is the Bible full of so much information when? People don't actually read it, don't care about it. Well, my answer is that it's there to give us a fuller picture of who God is and how he treats mankind. Just before you move on, just uh, very quickly, you know that the doctrine of the gospel are the principles or the truths taught by Christ and the apostles. Now, we have also the doctrine of Plato, for example. You know what I mean? Uh, when we want to focus on the doctrine, we have to understand what is the teaching, you know, of that doctrine. And I, as I said, it it's also means instruction. And Jesus actually did that when he said to the disciples, to the Great Commission, you know, now go and preach everything what I have told you. You cannot just uh, pull out of context something in the Bible, make a doctrine out of it. Well, um, there are plenty of people around who don't believe in the validity of the Old Testament. But the Old Testament 
talks about how sin came into the world. It talks about God as creator. It talks about, well, the, the, all the prophecies about Christ are in the Old Testament, all 350 of them. And the person who says, well, the Old Testament, we don't need to take any notice of. Well, it's full of doctrine. How can you worship a God if you don't worship him as creator? You yeah. bring him down to almost a human level. Well, I like to think of the word doctrine as a structure of our beliefs. It's the very grid or form of, uh, of, of our beliefs. I remember that um, Charles Swindoll once wrote, if we don't know what we don't know, then it's easy to believe what's not true. It's only with a solid grasp of what the Bible says and doesn't say that we can be confident in what we believe and why. I think that the Bible gives us uh, a structure of belief, principles, which we call doctrine, and that's what we live by, Len. Yes. Now, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7, there is a a bit of a, um, a comment by Jesus about various forms of worship. Lydia, would you read Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7 and... Uh, can you pick out what's missing in there with regard to worship? It says, and when you pray, do not keep on bubbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. It says in verse 6 above that, it says, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And uh, a bit further down, it's uh, showing the prayer. So it means when we relate to God through prayer, we have to be specific. We have to be clear and sure, not bubbling many words. But we have to pray from our heart, not superficial. should be a personal prayer. should be a personal personal need with emotions and intelligence as it was mentioned before and uh, consistent not based on feelings or circumstances so I'm, I'm, I love the Lord every time, every moment uh, any time uh, not depend on the circumstances or feelings so I am uh, connected with the Lord every minute, every second of my life So really Jesus was here talking about people who have what I would call unintelligible worship. Uh, For example, saying a mantra over and over and over and over and over. What you said there was very pertinent, that our worship must be meaningful to us and meaningful to God. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 18 and 19, The Apostle Paul has something to say about unintelligible worship. Joe, would you like to share your thoughts and these verses with us? Yes, uh, yes, Len. Um, Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 18 and 19, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So clearly to Paul, it was important that the worship, the message that is being shared, 
is something that is meaningful to others, to the hearers, that is upbuilding, that it is edifying, rather than um, just a, a babbling or a repetitious, you know, phrase that's said over and over again. So clearly the focus is on the intelligence, the clarity of what is being said, and it has to be for ed- the edification of the church. So it's not the quantity, it's the quality. Yes, that's a good statement. I've actually worshipped in a, a church overseas where I did not understand the language very well. And I can tell you it's a totally frustrating experience. I didn't walk out of there feeling blessed or edified. I just felt frustrated. Well, uh, in relation to what Jesus said in John 4 about worshipping in spirit and truth, do you see any value in lighting candles, repeating mantras, adoring icons, etc., as part of worship? I've actually recently um, gone looking into this whole thing, uh, some major denominations. One major denomination, their guide to worship, I'd like to read what it says with regard to the use of candles in their worship. It says, the presence of the light reminds us of Jesus coming into the world and into our lives. The light or the candle is carried into the worship service as a symbol of Jesus coming into the presence of the worshiping community. Many congregations use two candles on the altar to point out that Jesus was both human and uh, a human being and God. And at the end of the service, the light, one light, is carried out into the world to show that Jesus is uh, the light of the world for people everywhere. And this light leaves the worship service as the, at the pastor's direction, carrying out the lighted candle lighter. So this symbolizes, they say, the light of Jesus being uh, carried out into the world where believers are to serve. Well, I can say that this seems to be a great ceremony, but I can't find any instruction on this sort of symbolism being used in this way in the scriptures. I, um, I think that I can say that we, yes, we, have introduced icons and ceremonies and traditions into our worship. Nowhere in the Bible have we been instructed by God to light candles or to do little, the little ceremonial things we do in our worship experience today. Yes. Now, Ken, uh, I'd like you to read a couple of verses, and then I would like to ask this question. It's about whose beauty and whose holiness is being highlighted. The first is Psalm 29.2, and if you could follow that up by First Chronicles 16, verse 29, the second part. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And then we go to Chronicles. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. So again, we say that this is uh, repeated through the Bible sometimes to make it very clear to us. Okay, thank you, Ken. Now, it's talking about beauty and holiness or splendor and holiness. Brenton, how is the Lord's beauty seen? According to the texts that uh, we're about to look at, Lynn, 
it's seen in his character, and I'm going to read it from Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In chapter 34, the very next chapter, because the Israelites had um, danced around the golden calf and therefore broken God's commandments and Moses in anger had smashed the Ten Commandments that God had written with his own finger, he now had to return to Mount Sinai with another set of tables for God to rewrite them again. And the bottom line of, of Moses' request to show me your glory or to show me your way, rather than God revealing himself to Moses as a human being, because Moses wouldn't have been able to live and see that, um, God said, what's sufficient for you is the characteristics we're looking for here is my character, who I am and what I do. And I think that that's really what it's touching on here, Lynn. So when we think of educating our children, we need to think of educating them along the lines of God's holiness because I really don't think, even in modern-day Christendom, there is a lot of time spent on God's holiness. We hear the word awesome used about everything from a cherry ripe to um, a car to uh, a building or something like that. I believe the word awesome really only applies to God. And uh, I believe that uh, we need to educate not only our children but ourselves to realise that God's character is the greatest revelation that he has given us of who he is. And yes. if we can understand that better, I believe it will move us to a deeper relationship in our worship to him. I like what you said, that the beauty we perceive in the Lord is his beauty of character. Yes. Because nobody has seen his face and we can't really tell what God looks like. Can King David, the psalmist, who wrote many of the psalms, spoke about the object of true worship. Would you like to share a little bit about that? Sure, I'm going to read a few verses from Psalm 96, 2 down to 9. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honour and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come unto his courts. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Now that, that makes uh, some interesting statements there, how we should worship the Lord God and who he is. Yes. We recognise that God is holy, although, as Brenton has pointed out, God is um, perhaps, to some people, not so holy anymore. But in recognition of his beauty and holiness, what should be our attitude now? I just want to 
point out that this verse describing our attitude toward him was mentioned earlier. It's Psalm 29.2. Will, would you like to share on this one? I think confronting the Lord in his beauty and uh, splendor and holiness, our attitude should certainly be to give credit to honor to our God, to ascribe praise to him. In other words, reverence and worship him. I'd like to point to a text in um, Romans chapter 14, verse 11. It says, for as it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. I believe, Len, that in the final scenes of uh, Earth's history, when Jesus confronts the inhabitants of the Earth in his magnificent splendor, we won't argue about this anymore. We are, we are told that what the reaction of the people will be. And, and I'd like you to hear how it includes more than just humans. Revelation 5 verse 13 says, Every creature which is in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing, and honor, and glory, and power, be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. The sheer magnificence of his presence, his grace, and everything must must really drive us to awe, as Brenton has said. And um, that is the very heart of worship. Of our, of our God. Mm. Well, Joe, Deuteronomy 4, chapter 4, verse 9, which I alluded to before, and I gave the wrong chapter number, talks about teaching children about worship. Would you like to share a little bit on this? We've already touched on the importance of, of sharing it and teaching our children, teaching the next generation about God's goodness. And so I'll just read this, and it says in verse 9, Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. So it starts with us, doesn't it? Teach them to your children and to their children after them. So even grandparents have a role to play. It's not just the parents that they are to pass on the goodness of God, their experience with God. I guess it's already been alluded to that true worship protects from false worship. And, you know, and false worship is putting your faith in things that are powerless to help us, to comfort us, to assure us, to give us wholeness and hope. Only God can supply these things. And if we worship him, then we will have protection. We will not put our hope in things that will let us down. Even if it means ourselves, you know, if we become the center of our own worship, we'll only let ourselves down because we're not reaching any higher than the level that we're at. I guess the important thing to take away from this is don't forget, be careful to watch. Don't let it fade from your memory and to teach it to your own children and to your grandchildren Ah. that only God is truly worthy. I know we've covered a little bit of this. In the Early past, but we teach by example. Yes. We teach our children by our testimony. And thirdly, by revealing what God has done for others. Lydia. Len, I wanted to say exactly what you said, that I remember when my mother used to sing songs to us when we were children. 
and she was telling us stories from the Bible. And when she was working in any area, outside or inside, she was talking to us about God. She was singing songs. And um, as you said, she taught us by her example. And she had many experiences, and that was her testimonies. And in this way, she revealed to us about God, what God has done for her in her life. And in this way, we were taught and we took with us in our hearts for the rest of our lives. Yes. In many churches, and I suppose pretty much every church, there are traditions that people have. And I've always thought to myself that tradition is not worship. But um, Mark chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, and see what Jesus had to say about traditions. Mark 7, verse uh, 3 and 4, it says this, The Jews, especially Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over the cupped hands, as required by, by uh, their ancient traditions. And in verse 4 it says, similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. Or some other translation said, until they have a bath. This is but one of many traditions they have clung to. What I was trying to say here also is that tradition, it can bring you far away from the truth of the Bible if you are not knowing the Bible. Even what Lydia just said before, you know, it's important to have a role model, to have your parents. That's what we're talking about, worship in education. It's very important, but if that's only what it is, it can get you, if you are lucky, to put it this way, if you are taught very well uh, in the right way, yeah, that may be a good uh, thing to follow up. But if not, you may be in a, a great danger. It's very important to have knowledge of the word of God, of the truth, and to see how, uh, because tradition is creeping in from all aspects. Now, I grew up in a very, very traditional Orthodox part of the world where uh, tradition was more important than anything else. Mm. And everything was based only on um, uh, rituals and all sorts of things like that tradition. And I know that some churches, I'm talking about here traditional churches, are even emphasizing of the fact that tradition is above the Bible. Yes. Yes. And that's very dangerous. That's why when we mention the word tradition, it's nothing wrong with tradition if that fits in the teaching of the Bible. Mm. If, uh, if it's just something else because it was passed on the generations and you don't know even where come from what's the real uh, purpose or meaning it it can be uh, dangerous just real quickly and i just wanted to add that i think this is one of the greatest problems in churches today that people are not reading the bibles themselves they're following the traditions of man but not the traditions of god yeah joe just quickly, there could be even a more sinister uh, reason behind it. I think that sometimes we can substitute it, the unregenerate, unconverted 
heart can substitute tradition for the truth so that they feel that they're fulfilling their obligations to God without actually knowing God. Ah, so we fill out, okay. you know, our lives with, it's not a substitute for the truth. That's a very important point. Brenton, I know you've got something to say about traditions and true worship. Well, uh, Mark 7 verse 13, uh, we did actually look at other verses as well, but I'm only going to read verse 13. It says, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you handed down and many such things you do. It was talking about what Nick was commenting on earlier on about washing uh, pots and pans and all the rest of it in order to be ritually pure. Really what God is saying through Jesus to these people is this. He's saying, the commandments of God you have placed at a lower level than your traditions. I believe the reason they brought in their traditions was to interpret the word of God. But in actual fact, it had the opposite effect. It actually drew people away from studying the word of God for themselves, and it drew them towards their traditions. Now, there are certain churches today, as we all know, where they have strong traditions and they claim to believe in the word of God. Here's, a, here's an interesting test, a litmus test for all of us. If the traditions that you believe come in conflict with which the word of God teaches, which should you follow? According to Jesus, you should follow his commands first and foremost. If the tradition doesn't conform or fit into that, it needs to be discarded. Yes, a lot of young people go to college, university, and I've noticed particularly with our own children what happens at university. A lot of children who respect their teachers and lecturers at university, unless they have a very good grounding in the faith, they depart from it. Yes. And there's something missing in those universities that causes our children to lose their faith. What is it, Will? I think humanism, evolution, and uh, other philosophical ideas are uh, presented in our higher learning, uh, institutes of higher learning. Many of those traditions or teachings have left one thing in, uh, out in particular, and uh, what's missing in those teachings is, um, is God and one's relationship and responsibility to God. I think evolution is especially strong in this respect. Yes. Now, <clears throat> we won't take the time to read the last texts in this study, but in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verses 5 to 9, instructions are given to the parents of the nation of Israel to talk to their children about God's commandments. Now, Lydia, how are God's commandments connected to worship? Here in Deuteronomy, it's very beautifully described. And it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength. These commandments that, are, that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them at symbols 
on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. It means God's love, God's commandments, God's goodness and mercy should be impressed in our minds and in our hearts and in our daily worship we have to submission all our nature to God um, all our consciousness to his holiness and our all our nourishment of mind uh, in his truth uh, and in this way uh, he's pr- going to pur- purify our um, whole being and uh, uh, is going to open our hearts to, to pass this to all our generations, to our children and grandchildren and so on. Yes, the commandments reveal the beauty, the intelligence, the love of a good God. Well, we've reached the end of our study today, but, you know, worship is central to the Christian experience, and we hope this study has been helpful, that you may better understand the purpose, value and method of true worship. And, Brenton, would you please close today for us in prayer? Father in heaven, I pray that our worship to you may indeed be in spirit and in truth. You are alone of all the gods of this world. You alone are the true God. You are the one who created us and redeemed us. And I pray, Lord, that we may focus our minds as never before in a world that is casting around for somebody or something to worship. Help our worship always to be focused towards you. May our listeners have the experience too of being able to worship you in spirit and in truth. And may we all one day soon meet our great creator, the one who loved us, who redeemed us by the blood of Jesus Christ, and who is coming again to take us to be with him. Lord, we want to be there. We want to be ready to meet you and worship you in the way that you have instructed us in the word of God. But that worship on that day in heaven will be on a whole different level from what we're used to here. We look forward to that time. Keep us faithful so that we will be able to worship you one day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, everybody, for your participation today. And may God bless you in the meantime. And listeners, you probably have heard this before. Keep walking in the footsteps of Jesus.